You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we'll be discussing the New Year's Eve disappearance of Samuel Todd. Welcome back to the podcast in a brand new year. I am so glad to put 2020 in the past. I don't really know what to expect from 2021 or what it will bring, but I'm trying to be optimistic that things are going to get better, maybe, from here on out. I don't know. I, I just feel like I feel it in my bones that maybe, just maybe, we are in the home stretch of this stupid virus and we just need to hold out a little bit further and then we can finally have it behind us once and for all and get back to some semblance of normalcy. Honestly, I really just want to feel comfortable sending my kids to school again. Ugh, my daughter, she needs distance from us to learn and grow and progress, and I need my distance from her a little bit so I can get stuff done without having to answer a million of her questions. <laughs> it would also be really cool to see family and friends again, especially my family. I miss our big Sunday dinners and our birthday parties and our gatherings. Ugh, it certainly has been a rough year, and I'm an introvert, so I can't even imagine how it must have been, or must it, how it must be, for all you extroverts and social butterflies out there. I don't understand you extroverts, but I do feel bad. With the new year, I have some goals that I want to hit with the podcast. All right. So number one, I want to try and be a lot better with my social media. I just really suck at it. I don't really even post a ton on my personal Instagram. So it's just difficult for me to get on the podcast Instagram and post things because I just feel weird and like out of place. Um, But I know that if I want this show to have a further reach, then I'm going to have to get more active with it. Honestly, like that's really just what it boils down to. Also, this is my second goal, and it's a hefty goal, but I'm just going to throw it out into the universe and see what comes back. By the end of 2021, I want to have a 1,000 Instagram followers (laughs) and have more than 500 downloads per episode. It's a pretty hefty goal, but if you believe, you will achieve or you know, insert some other weird 1990s poster saying, like the one with the cat. Do you remember that one? So lame. I don't have any updates for any of the previous cases that we've covered so far, but I still hope that we will get some in the near future. DNA evidence has been a blessing or curse, depending on if you're the murderer or not, when it comes to these cold cases. And so I'm extremely confident and optimistic Today, we will be discussing the case of Samuel Todd, um, a 24-year-old Yale Divinity student who met up with his brother Adam and some old friends on New Year's Eve in 1983. In the early hours of 1984, he randomly decided to go on a quick jog around the block, and he has never been seen since. So, without further delay, let's discuss this case. Samuel Todd 
or Sam, as he was called by friends and family, so that's how I'm going to refer to him from here on after, was attending Yale Divinity School and living in Manhattan, New York. He was extremely introverted. Like, I think I'm introverted, but he was like my introvert times like a thousand. People who did not know him very well would describe him as being painfully shy and even socially awkward. However, to his family and friends, um, he allowed himself to open up a bit more and he actually had a pretty great sense of humor. He just liked to keep his tribe few in number, but tight, close. And that's my kind of guy because I can totally relate to that, having a small tribe that's really, really close. Um, He loved to play the drums and he actually played in a jazz group on the weekends. He also loved cross-country running and he had just passed his first exams for Presbyterian ordination, which I had to look it up because I had no idea what it, I mean, I guess I figured I knew what it meant, but I just didn't want to assume. So I looked into it. All right, so ordination examinations are given by an ecclesiastical body as a way to ensure that a candidate is equipped, adequately called, and prepared for ministry. Um, So in the Presbyterian Church, what he was studying for, there are five exams. The first one's theology, then worship and sacraments, then polity, and then um, biblical exegesis. So it's undertaken in either biblical Greek or Hebrew with the same language for all students taking the exam at the same time. And then the final exam is the Bible content exam. And these are not easy to pass by any means, and they're certainly not for everyone. In fact, it is common for students to have to take their exams several times before passing them. Up to 28% of ordained ministers will have repeated at least one of their exams but probably more than one. Some, though not all, presbyteries impose a limit on the number of times that you can take an exam. So if you take an exam, I'm just going to throw a number out here because I don't know. So let's say you're only allowed to take the exam five times. So if you've already passed the first one, you've already passed the second one, and then you're taking the third one and you fail it five times, you can't take it again. So it is not unheard of for a candidate to be dismissed from the ordination process after multiple attempts to pass the tests that they failed. As you would imagine, any college-age boy, Sam's age, as New Year's Eve approached, he was in search of plans. Because who wants to be alone on New Year's? I mean, we all basically were just forced to do it. And while I'm sure we did our best to make the most of it, There's nothing like being surrounded by friends and family or both to make the end of the year a little bit brighter and more fun. Heck, I'd rather be around complete strangers than to be absolutely alone on New Year's Eve. So Sam called up some of his buddies from Vassar, which is a school that he was attending before he went to Yale, and he made plans. And then like a couple days before New Year's Eve, his brother Adam called to let him know that he would actually be in town for the holiday. And when I say Sam wanted to make plans, boy, did he. He ended up going to two parties during the earlier hours of the night, and then he ended up making his way over to a third party, Partey hopping his way through Manhattan, living the dream of any 24-year-old single guy in New York. The party was held at the last, the last party, the party was held at 271 
Mulberry Street. It was said that Sam was having the time of his life. He was drinking a lot of beer and vodka and dancing. And his friend would later say, he was twirling like a young colt, laughing and eating up the energy of the night until he was too dizzy and he had to leave me on the dance floor alone to get a breath of fresh air. And it must be the 80s because I feel like men don't really talk like whimsical gypsies like that anymore. (laughs) The 80s. Seriously, gotta love it. When Sam went outside, it was around 3 a.m. We know this because his brother Adam recalls seeing him go down the stairs. Um, Adam attempted to catch up with Sam just to make sure that Sam was all right. But Adam, like Sam, had also been drinking heavily that night. So he kind of took a tumble down the stairs and he ended up sitting down on one of the stairs and he couldn't catch up. Um, Sam actually did notice that Adam was attempting to join him with what I can only assume was a commotion of like David Bowie, Madonna, and Michael Jackson um, tunes playing in the background. So Sam turned to Adam and he was like, hey, it's okay. I'm fine. Go back on upstairs. I'm just going to jog for a bit um, because I feel like I need to sober myself up. And I think if I go running out in the cold, that will do the trick. Okay. First off, this is a red flag that probably would have been noticed had people's bodies not been surging with alcohol. Who goes jogging at 3am? Honestly, I couldn't just I could just end it with who goes jogging because that's not what I'm about. But some weirdos really love it. But I think even those jogger weirdos know that 3 a.m. in New York City in January is a no-go. They're not that crazy. So immediately I'm thinking, no bueno. Sam had left the party without his wallet, without his ID, and without his coat. And if you guys have ever been in New York on New Year's Eve or any time in January, then you know how bitter cold he must have been. New York cold is so much different from coldness out here in the West. This New York cold is humid and it chills you right down to your bones. Sometimes with every breath that you take, you feel like hot daggers are slicing and piercing your lungs. So I cannot imagine that Sam was thinking clearly most likely because of the because i don't think anyone let alone a long time cross-country runner would think that that would be a swell idea adam returned upstairs but after about 10 to 20 minutes he just kind of had this gut feeling that something was not right and he could not shake this gut feeling no matter how many times he thought about his favorite scene from the recently released movie Return of the Jedi. And that is a joke. I just looked up what the number one movie in 1983 was and I couldn't resist allowing it a cameo in this episode. Honestly, I feel like these guys would appreciate it because, I mean, everyone loved Star Wars back in the day, especially 25-year-old dudes going to Vassar and yell. So Adam headed down the stairs and he went looking for his brother, but he couldn't find him anywhere. He walked up and down Houston Street, which is where he had last seen his brother headed, but nothing. He got some help from Sam's friends who kind of joined in on the search party. And I'm going to use that term loosely because honestly, and I mean no disrespect to them at all, but I'm honestly surprised that they searched for him at all while being in this drunken stupor. 
partying and drinking until 3.30 in the morning, even when I was 24, 3.30 in the morning, I'd better be in bed or else I was falling asleep wherever I was and you better not try to move me unless you want me to get irrationally mad at you. So anyways, you know this search, in quotes, was probably not all that thorough. I'm guessing some of the guys didn't even remember why they were outside halfway through the search, but they tried and I salute them for that at least. The guys eventually decided to go back to their apartment, hoping that he would be there. And when he wasn't, they kind of hung out there for a while, hoping that he'd show up at any minute. Once they were able to sober up a bit, they called Sam's older brother, who had not been partying with them that night, and they drove around in the older brother's car searching for him, but they couldn't find Sam. So at 11 a.m., they went to the Manhattan precinct and reported him missing. Sam was actually the first person to be reported missing that day in New York City. And you guys, a lot of freaking people go missing on New Year's Eve, specifically in New York City. Are you sitting down? Because I am about to tell you how many people went missing that night in New York City from December 31st, 1983 to January 1st, 1984. Seriously, sit down. I'm not kidding. Are you sitting? 16,000. 16,000 people went missing in that single night in New York City. Is your mind blown? Unless you've become desensitized from playing Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto 24-7 for the last three years, peeing into empty Mountain Dew bottles to avoid pausing your game, your mind should be freaking astonished right now. You know what? I am actually going to look up how many people went missing last year. I think the numbers would be skewed this year, like from 2020 to 2021, because um, Times Square was seriously so empty this year, which was probably such a relief for law enforcement officers. They probably welcomed the break, but okay, let's look up how many people were reported missing on January 1st in 2020 in New York City. Okay, so the missingnewyorkcity.com reports 13,000 people reported missing. So not as much as 1984, but still, that's a heck of a lot of people unaccounted for in a single night. Anyways, that was such a detour back to our man, Sam. Like I said, Adam had called his older brother, John, who lived in New Jersey. Uh, They called friends, family, hospitals, county jails, urgent care clinics, homeless shelters, recreational centers, literally just any place that they could think of that Sam could be or could have stumbled into because they were desperate to find him. While the news spread at Yale, a group of 200 volunteers came in and joined the search. And I think that's great. I think that's awesome that they were able to get such a great turnout and that the students at Yale felt such like connection to possibly a student that they didn't even know and they just wanted to find him. And I think that's awesome. Um, On January 10th, an article was posted on the front page of the Herald. And if you're wondering, okay, Rochelle, you told me that 16,000 people went missing that night. Why was Sam able to get on the cover of this prestigious newspaper? Um, Is it because he's rich? Is it because he's white? 
or maybe because he went to Yale? Nope. He really was just lucky enough that a friend of the family happened to be working at the Herald, and when he heard about Sam's disappearance, he wanted to help. And so by using his talent of writing, he got it into the paper. This, of course, caused a media frenzy. A bunch of papers and magazines jumped on the bandwagon. Uh, This gave Sam more coverage, and soon tons of people were looking for Sam Todd. It was not even like a statewide thing. It was like a nationwide thing. There was actually a thing called Sam Search where states were communicating with each other and talking to each other. Have you seen him here? Have you seen any witness sightings over there? I guess they thought that he might have either attempted to start a new life or maybe he just got to another state while in a drunken stupor like hitchhiking or something. At first, police believed that Sam had gotten hurt that night, either by injuring himself somehow or from being the unfortunate victim of a monkey gone wrong. They thought he had possibly been struck on the head and might have amnesia, but that eventually he would turn up. This theory quickly faded into oblivion, though, when Sam did not come forward. There was no There were actually no sightings reported of him for quite a while, and his family assured police that Sam was pretty streetwise, because apparently when Sam was a freshman or a sophomore at a different college, he had been mugged, and so he had taken it upon himself to figure out what to look for, and he always tried to stay out of places where there wasn't a lot of people, but While I can only imagine how a traumatic experience like that could change a person and make them hypervigilant, Sam, as we remember, was not in a sober state of mind the last time he was seen. So he probably wasn't very alert. He probably wasn't very hypervigilant or particularly aware of his surroundings. Through the help of Sam's search, posters of Sam were distributed throughout the country. The posters described him as a 24-year-old Caucasian male with light brown hair and blue eyes. He was 5'11 and 135 pounds, and he wore glasses with a dark frame. Think Harry Potter. Um, He had a slim build with two small scars near his eye. Think Harry Potter. At the time of his disappearance, he was wearing a dark blue sweatshirt with a circular emblem, blue jeans, blue sneakers, a plastic watch. Yeah. An employee at a homeless shelter, not too far from where Sam was last seen, claims that after seeing the posters of Sam, he recalled seeing a man just like that at his shelter. He said the man came in and had a meal and was seen washing car windows around Greenwich Village. In fact, after the posters were dispersed, they started getting a lot of reports of sightings of Sam. However, most were not even looked into. Because every picture of Sam, and I'll post some on the Instagram account for you to see for yourself, but literally every picture of Sam looks completely different. It looks like a completely, totally, completely different person. He literally is just one of those people with like a thousand faces or a thousand different looks. And in fact, there's a book written about Sam Todd's disappearance and it's titled A Thousand Faces. There were, of course, theories that Sam had run away from his old life to begin a new one. Maybe he didn't want to work at the Presbyterian Church, and having so much fun at the party that night had propelled this decision forward to get away and start a brand new life where he could be himself and not who everyone else wanted or thought that he should be. 
but his ex-girlfriend, Jill Tinsney, says that that couldn't be true. She said that he loved his family, he loved his life, he would never just run away. But we have to consider the source. This was an ex-girlfriend at the time. And I think that we can all agree that an ex is probably not the best source to describe who you are now. I know my exes certainly don't have a clue who I am now. I saw this funny meme the other day. What was it? I'm totally going to botch it, but it basically said something along the lines of, if you knew me before the age of 24, you didn't really know me. You knew season one of me. We were incredibly underfunded and the writing was just terrible. (laughs) And it's so true. Also, apparently Sam was not doing very well in school in that most recent fall semester. He had actually gotten two incompletes, meaning that he was not going to graduate when he was supposed to. He was working at a a homeless shelter for $4 an hour, which is great. I mean, I appreciate his dedication to such an altruistic cause, but $4 in 1983 is like $10 now. And I mean, hello, New York City. It's like the most expensive city to live in in the entire world. There is no way he could afford to live, go to school, and survive off of that. Get real. So I imagine that he was struggling. Apparently, his aunt was actually paying for the actual tuition. So I guess that wasn't really an issue. Um, But at the time of his disappearance, he was not current with his rent. Apparently, his landlord spoke to police and told them that he had had several conversations with Sam about not paying his rent on time and that he really, really liked the kid, but he just wasn't going to be able to allow him to keep doing that. Like, If you keep paying late on your rent, you're going to get evicted. He told, um, he had told Sam that if he was late again, he might have to consider finding housing someplace else. His aunt said that she was always willing to pay for anything that he needed, not just tuition. In fact, she had done that all throughout his freshman year. But after freshman year, Sam had stopped asking her for money. So she assumed that he had found a well-paying job. So... She just continued to pay his tuition, which, wowee, $2,000 per semester. That's like six grand today. So can she be my aunt, please? For real. Okay, now back to the ex-girlfriend, because I found out something that I don't think has any significant value or influence, but I find it to be pretty interesting, and you never know. Wouldn't that be a crazy plot twist if the ex-girlfriend was somehow involved. Okay, so Jill and Sam had broken up that past autumn because Jill was like grossed out or creeped out by the idea of being a minister's wife. She just like did not want that to be her life. And since Sam was studying to be a minister, obviously their paths in life were just not in alignment. Sam understood where Jill was coming from, but he wasn't going to alter his career path for her. And Jill just couldn't understand, like she couldn't fathom why he wouldn't consider another career in order to be with her. Wasn't she worth changing for? So she actually made several attempts to talk to him after their breakup to try to convince him to change what he wanted to do so that they could be together. And honey, if we ever sat down and had a brunch together, relationships 101, You cannot change someone who doesn't want to change. Okay, honey? Also, she was at the party. 
that last party on Mulberry Street. I'm not saying she did this because I have no evidence to support it. And honestly, like I legally am not allowed to. Um, so I'm letting you know this right now, but is it possible that she snuck down the stairs after Sam and met up to talk with him? I don't know. Maybe she wasn't involved, but maybe she was the last person to see him alive and not Adam. And maybe she knows where he headed off to. I don't know. Maybe we'll never know the true answer to that question. Some people say that with all of this going on, the breakup, the money problems, the bad grades, the postponement of his graduation, the irrational ex popping in time and time again, maybe this was enough for Sam to consider and commit suicide. However, a body has never been found and it's pretty hard to hide a body in New York City unless you like throw it into a river or something. But even then it's going to like float down. Somebody's going to find it. Yeah, just not going to happen. His family actually wrote a letter to uh, Yale students and it read, as we keenly miss Sam and are baffled by the mystery of his disappearance, we are filled with a sense of the unpredictability of life and the absurdity of the way things can happen. We think about the tragic disappearances and separations occurring all over the world, the many disappeared people, some of them known to us in Latin America and other places. We think of the thousands of people whose lives are suddenly displaced from wars, natural disasters, accident, illnesses, and crime. From our place of relative comfort and security, we have a sharper sense of the suffering of those whose family members and friends are missing in much more dire circumstances. I think this goes to show how wonderful this family is. They are thinking of others in their time of despair and grief and saying like, yeah, this is horrible for our family, but we know that there are people out there that are going through so much worse. It was said that Sam, while growing up, Apparently he moved around a lot um, because his dad was also a minister and so they kind of moved around with the family. Um, and it was because of this that he was drawn and felt most comfortable to the homeless community, to the homeless population. Apparently Sam had often remarked that he didn't feel like he really belonged anywhere because he had never really been able to establish roots anywhere. It was said by his doormates or his like roommates that he had never unpacked that fall semester is it possible that in desiring to establish roots somewhere anywhere and the fact that he was loved so much by the homeless population that he was working with that he abandoned his old life that he never really felt like he belonged in to live a life amongst the homeless this is a theory that's swirling around out there. And I mean, it's not my cup of tea. I don't think very many people volunteer or choose to be homeless. I feel like it's usually a series of circumstances that get you there. But who knows? I'm sure it's not, it wouldn't have been the first time that that ever happened. Um, his aunt was rich, but I don't believe his parents were. And maybe he felt outcasted at Yale, which is notorious for being a rich kid school and he just didn't want to be there anymore he didn't feel like he fit in there and if we're being honest with ourselves if he had attempted to blend in to the homeless community I can't imagine that being very hard I mean I'm sure the homeless population would figure it out but the homeless population especially in New York City where there are just so many people they don't really get acknowledged very much, if at all. We could probably pass him on the street every day on our way to work for 10 years and just not notice him. That's just how crazy, busy, and bustling New York City is. Not to mention that so many movies are notorious at making the homeless population look 
scary, evil, menacing, fill in the blank with a different terrifying adjective, especially in New York City. Uh, hello, I mean, I've watched my fair share of Home Alone Lost in New York. Have you? Something strange that I learned, apparently a little bit before his disappearance, a friend of Sam's actually reached out to a professor that worked at Yale and told that professor that Sam was a really troubled young man and he needed to be talked to. The professor did in fact talk to Sam and he recalls that Sam looked ill and didn't seem to be in full control of his life. Um, but he kind of evaluated him in the couple of seconds that he had to talk to him. And he said that he didn't seem suicidal. And so because of that, there really wasn't much that he could do for Sam. The professor said he appeared to be struggling with his faith. He, uh, Sam wasn't sure if he believed in it anymore. And for anyone going through a faith crisis or faith differentiation, um, this would be difficult. But I'm sure the fact that Sam had also been studying this religion as a ultimate career for the last three to five years, I mean, I'm sure that just added an extra layer of stress and uncertainty in his life. This could point to why he might want a different life. He seemed lost. Sam was also struggling with how someone could love him, but not love him completely, like trying to change him. Because Jill wanted to be with him. She loved him, but she didn't want to be with him because he wanted to be a minister. Some also speculate that he might have been a homosexual. There's no proof, but it's just like a theory that's out there. And that maybe as he was wanting to explore that side of himself, he felt in direct conflict with the religion that he had grown up in and the career path that he was in the process of attaining. A career I learned would be following in the footsteps of his father. So did Sam even want to be a minister at all or... Was he just feeling pressured by his dad? Sam is still missing to this day. His body has never been found and none of the supposed sightings of him have ever pound, panned out. If you were kicking it in New York City on New Year's Eve in 1983 to 1984 and you have any information regarding this case or know someone who has shared some information with you, call the New York City Police Department at 646-610-6914. While I hate to speculate that Sam just up and left to start a new life, just because I think it's such a cop-out for cops, hence the name, there is something about the beginning of the year, new year, new year, new me, you know, where I could see that if someone was already struggling with their identity and they never really felt like they belonged anywhere and they feared they were going to disappoint people with their life choices, whether be that he was a homosexual or whether it be he just didn't want to be a minister anymore. It would make sense that maybe he would want to escape his life and go somewhere where no one knew his name. However, at the same time, when someone is going to do that, I think typically there's usually a lot of planning involved, but that might just be my Virgo speaking. I think that he would at least have to withdraw money from his account in order to put those plans into motion. I also think someone would have figured it out by now, but I don't know. The 80s, man. The 80s were a different time, and we know that because so many murders went unsolved, and now, finally, the truth is coming out. There 
weren't really paper trails or internet histories back then either. So I think it would have been much easier to just kind of escape your life back then than it obviously would be to do so now, at least without the assistance of like the witness protection program. But in the 80s, totally, especially in the 80s, you could totally just up and disappear and no one would ever find you on Facebook or Instagram. Maybe in Sam's intoxicated mind, this idea of fleeing his life seemed amazing. And so he just went for it. And then when he sobered up, he liked where he was and he didn't want to go back. There were apparently multiple sightings of Sam in San Francisco, California. Is it possible he was able to hitchhike his way all the way over there to start a new life in complete obscurity? And again, he was partying with some old friends from college um, when he was attending Vassar. Um, and he was with them the night of his disappearance and the night that he ran into his ex. And so I'm inclined to think that maybe when he saw everyone and saw how great they all seemed to be doing, whereas he knew in the back of his mind that his life was kind of in shambles and it was kind of far from where he wanted it to be, is it possible that he just snapped? Maybe this led to him wanting to leave this life that he didn't love behind or maybe even end his own life. I'm not buying the mugging theory because I just don't think a mugger would risk hiding or concealing a body in such a way that it hasn't been able to be found for 35 years. Usually, and I mean, I'm not a mugger, so it's not like I have personal experience, but I would assume that muggers get what they want from you and they hightail it the heck out of there. I mean, maybe they move the body off of a path or off of like a trail, but they are not going to risk burying it or carrying it around, especially not on New Year's Eve in New York City where there's like a ton of people out and about. No, I'm sorry, but that's not happening. Hello, New York City, the city that never sleeps. I got you, Sinatra. I feel you, Frankie. No, just no. I know that the new year can be a bit triggering for people. I think with all of the excitement of new year, we often don't think about those who might dread it. People who may feel an immense amount of guilt or shame that they didn't accomplish the goals that they had set out previously, or they're being too hard on themselves for not being the person that they thought they would be at this point in their lives. I think if goals work for you, that's great. I'm never going to tell a person who's making a goal not to, but all I'm saying is that if you are the kind of person that goals like stress you out and are triggering for you, don't feel pressured to do them. This is your life and you get to live with you all of your life. So be the person you want to be and do it your way. Don't let others infiltrate and influence your mind. Live the way you want to live and the way that makes you happy. Don't feel like you have to change your name and uproot your life and move to a completely different place in order to start over again. You can be you right now, right here. If anything only make a goal that you're going to try and be a kinder person this year. The world always needs a little bit more kindness. Am I right? Don't stress. You're doing this whole life thing great. We're all just doing our best. You got this. All right. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at mysteries still unsolved. I love talking to you guys and interacting with you guys after each and every episode. I'm going to post some pictures from today's episode on there too. So you can see what I'm talking about with him having like a thousand bases. It's going to literally blow your mind and let me know what you make of this case. If you have any questions or theories or ideas, post them on there. I want to see them. I get so excited when I get a comment. So make 
my day. And don't forget to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?